It's always very useful to put on the microphone. <laughs> At least in this role. It's also rather lovely to sit here, to arrive and sit with you, to come into this very palpable field of practice, of engagement. And uh, particularly in the context of this solitary retreat, which I've for many years had the really good fortune to be part of. Uh, there's a, a kind of a sense of, hmm, I wonder what's happening for everybody. In most other contexts where I'm teaching, one might expect before sitting down to have a little more of an idea about that. And while at one sense I don't necessarily, haven't been in for a few days, don't really know what's going on. There's a certain amount of a sense that one gets walking in, just the feel, the tonality of what's here. But at the same time also there's things that happen perhaps no matter what are the particulars. And so one theme that I thought I'd like to reflect on that might be useful irrespective of what might be happening for you is to, or perhaps along the lines of we could say what it means to uh, look at our practice in a way in which we honour and appreciate that which we experience as disruptive. Or another way we could say it is in praise of discomfort. What a beta. Think about the possibility of being in praise of discomfort. The last few days had the good fortune to be invited and have an opportunity to sit in on some teachings being offered by a very wonderful teacher from America, Reginald Ray, like I mentioned him last week. He's teaching the, the, the uh, retreat as part of the a five-month course he's been running over here. And uh, something very humbling and inspiring, a very human embodiment of, of wisdom. And this morning, interestingly, sitting there in this large tent, a tent about the size of this room, actually, interestingly, a, a marquee, on a frosty morning. And it was, I guess it was frosty here. It was certainly frosty in Buckfast, where the retreat is taking place, a little higher up on the moor. And the heating wasn't working. So it, was, it wasn't quite frosty on the inside, but it was pretty cool. And there was a way in which kind of the initial reflection and engagement with that reality, it just kind of both in terms of directly being spoken to, but in terms of actually what we're here for, what we're about, I felt really useful <coughs> to... Just kind of remember how many things go wrong and how 
initially irritating that might be for us, and yet how at the same time it's something profoundly useful. Yesterday at the retreat in Buckfaster, they were setting up the heating and a lot of banging and thumping and moving of equipment. The first set of heating equipment didn't work, so they were replacing it. They finally set it up. It started working. And pretty much as soon as they had all the heating working, the sound system cut out. That was great. Now there was no um, problem with temperature, but being able to actually hear the teaching, no longer possible. And it reminded me of a series of very expensive Sony professional Walkman tape recorders that we had at the old guy house that one after another stopped succeeding or managing to record the Dharma talks. And for them, that was some 20, 25 years ago, that was like they were state-of-the-art, really, the business. And uh, they kept failing somehow. And we did wonder a little bit if it was all this meditation was messing with the electronics. <laughs> mm, I don't really know. But there's something about disruption, there's something about discomfort that we can perhaps look at or contemplate in a way as to imagine or to reflect upon what what is the sacred meaning of it or what is the significance it has in our inner experience in the world when things don't play out the way we had hoped they would, the way we imagined or would have liked them to be. Unwanted outcomes. There are so many, aren't there? In so many larger and smaller ways. We often find that despite our best efforts or the best efforts of others, it doesn't quite come to what we'd hoped for. Whether that be the the efforts to calm and quieten the mind, to steady the body, and we find agitation arising in the midst of all of it. Whether it be other realms and spheres of engagement in our lives. There's something, I think, really helpful in this territory for us. And I noticed, and was again reflecting on this morning, how when, when I'm leading retreats outdoors, when I'm teaching outside of a kind of the, the relatively contained and somewhat more controllable environment of, an, of being within you know, four walls, roof and floor, that there's something in me that gets excited when the weather turns bad. Now, it's always interesting to me. It does happen. But it's interesting as much because I spend a lot of time hoping that the weather will be good. On my behalf, because I'd really like it to be good, and on behalf of everyone else in the retreat, because I know they would like it to be good, and because at some level it feels like my job will be easier if we have good weather and we're outdoors and we're trying to practice. And all that is kind of true. But there's something in me that gets excited. That just has... It's, it, excited isn't maybe quite the right word, but there's an uprising of enthusiastic energy and a sense of possibility and a kind of a almost joyful anticipation of okay let's see what we've got let's see what happens here there's something that comes alive in the heart when we actually have to face the things that we were hoping wouldn't happen 
for all the oh it's nice when it's sunny and warm and comfortable and cosy and things are going along just smoothly and I like that as much as the next person I do and I do invest quite some time in trying to achieve that outcome and effort for sure in meditation in day to day activities of course I do and yet and I imagine on occasion at least for some of you it would be the same maybe more than occasionally but what is it if we turn to those moments where all that we endeavoured to bring together or to hold together or to keep apart suddenly doesn't follow that plan it's like for me it's like we get thrown or say throne, we could say we get invited back into the reality of our life. And a life that isn't moving according to our plans and ideas or our hopes and our wishes. A life that is moving according to something vaster. Something greater and less comprehensible than our particular orientations or preferences or desires that come out of our understandable but nonetheless conditioned wish for ease, familiarity and comfort. Without knocking that particular pull or somehow judging or dismissing that urge we have because it has its place and uh, can be an, expro- an appropriate expression of a, a kindly and compassionate orientation towards ourselves or others, wishing for, for ease, for well-being, for non-difficulty, for non-suffering. And yet, there's a real danger for us in practice. And I think it's Unfortunately, rather predominant or, or more predominant than one might wish or hope. In practice, we can't help ourselves but start to notice the way we make it work to keep us comfortable in certain ways. We can't help ourselves start to notice that if I do it this way and not that way, it ends up feeling better. And of course, there's again, there's a place for that. And if we start to use our practice, if our practice becomes suborned to the urge for comfort, if we use it to try and stay comfortable, it loses its transformative, its catalytic power to the degree that we're unconscious that that's happened. So when we find it's not going the way we'd like it to, and I don't know if that's happened for any of you in the last two or three days on your, in your practice. I mean, if not, well, I bow to you, really. And genuinely, I'm not... It's wonderful. It's nice. Also, it's useful also when things do come together, unfold, and the way seems free and smooth. You know, the Buddha spoke about how it can be for us. He said, well, there are those for whom the path is quick and pleasant (laughs) and those for whom it is quick and unpleasant and those for whom it is pleasant but slow and then 
there are the rest of us, for whom it seems to be slow and unpleasant. He didn't say himself, the rest of us. That was my edition. But that sense of, oh yeah, maybe for many of us we recognise that. Things move slowly and often in difficult terrain. And from one perspective, we can be disappointed, frustrated, or even self-pitying, and maybe even self-critical with regard to that. And certainly, while compassion is appropriate here, any judgment or criticism of oneself is both unhelpful but unwarranted. But we could actually be grateful when we don't get it to work out, when it doesn't happen the way I want it to. If we see the way, the sense of self, the, the, the idea that I'm making this happen and go, am going to make it go the way I want it to, that, that construct that so often dominates a lot of our activity, when it's confounded by the fact that I can't make it happen. It's not working. It's not going there. It's not doing that. At least some of the time, it's not. It, it shows us, it, it, in a way, we start to see, we get to see that whole construct, that whole urge, that whole mechanism, which in its essential functioning is trying to keep us comfortable. This is basically what ego is all about, what self and its unhelpful manifestation is all about. It's trying to keep us comfortable in the form of free of discomfort or no pain, but also free from um, insecurity, which psychically, in terms of the mind, is where we are most uncomfortable. We don't know what's going on. We don't have familiarity. We therefore can't generate a sense of control in which we feel safe. All of that urge all of that activity to be comfortable has the effect in its ultimately unsuccessful endeavour to be comfortable of creating pressure, constriction and slowly squeezing our life to the point where it can feel profoundly constricted. And of course this these places of constriction, these places of holding, of tension, of tightness, of resistance, of demanding a certain experience or absolutely refuting and being unwilling to have a different one. These places, actually when we encounter them, because it doesn't play out in accordance with those demands we make, when we encounter them it's actually really good news. We could be grateful for these situations. And really, from, from an awakened perspective, all of the difficult, the discomfortable, the disruptive, the frustrating, annoying, irritating, damn stuff that happens, it's good news. It's a blessing. It's beneficial for the practice of freedom that we encounter this reality in our practice. It's not so good for samadhi. It's true. And because a lot of orientations and practice have a base in samadhi, and sort of also the idea that, well, I've got to get that together before anything else useful is going to happen, there can be a, a sort of attempting to organise things so as to make sure there is no disruption. 
to a certain degree, that's a useful way to do it, of course, in terms of how we set up a retreat, in terms of how we practice, of course. A certain amount of steadying, stabilizing, making things familiar and predictable and reasonably within the range of, of comfort that's tolerable for us. But ultimately we need to understand that that's only part of what's important and it's always and only in the service of something greater, which is not dependent on comfort, predictability, security, or our experience being particularly flattering to our ego. It's not good for samadhi to be disrupted, it's true. But it's great for wisdom. It's great for the letting go. It requires us and it demands us. And mostly, at least my mind, I don't know, your mind, when we have an option on letting go, it doesn't look that good. It happens mostly when there is no option. When the demand is such that life is saying, look, it's pretty clear here. You let go or you just suffer more. If we think, oh, maybe I can avoid suffering by holding on, I don't find letting go gets that much of a hearing as an option. In a way, we don't let go. It's the wisdom that sees the suffering and that holding, that demanding, that resisting, that lets go. And there's a a lovely uh, story of a conversation um, between... Some of the teachers from Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California with Ajahn Jumnian, who's a, a venerable old Thai um, monk and uh, much-loved teacher and practitioner who's been around for a long time. In fact, he was in Jack Cornfield's book, Living Buddhist Masters, about 30 years ago, and he's the only one still alive of, of those, uh, those teachers. He was asked a few years ago, by the, this group of teachers um, when he was teaching in, in Spirit Rock he said, you know, how can we deepen our practice? And his response was simple. He just looked at him and said, get out of your comfortable retreat centre. When we're comfortable, we, we tend to fall asleep. I mean, in fact, we only fall asleep if we're comfortable. Have you noticed that? You know? If it's physically uncomfortable or if it's too hot or too cold, sleepiness is not usually the issue. I mean, really too hot. A little bit warm, that goes for sleepy. If it actually gets hot, then something else happens. And if we actually look at what goes on in the mind, what we can discern is a really strong gravitational pull towards unconsciousness. It's not accidental that what we're doing is hard, is challenging, is demanding, requires a sustained and ongoing wholehearted endeavour. It's not a casual relationship we have with being unconscious. It's not a kind of a a sort of a flirtation or a sort of a not yet committed thing. At some level in the psyche and in the self and in the whole ego structure, it's a profoundly committed relationship upon which its very existence depends, which is why it's committed. The whole sense of self as a construct that believes it is the centre and the agent of existence depends upon being unconscious. Because we see and we notice as we make 
the effort as we engage in the practice to be more awake, to be more conscious, we start to see it. We start to see its constructive nature and its ultimately um, kind of feeble attempts to organise life in the face of life's pretty um, unorganisableness, you know, pretty sort of uh, undeniable unorganisableness. It can't be organised. And that pull to unconsciousness is connected very deeply with a sense of wanting to be comfortable. And comfort, both in terms of physical comfort, because we notice we don't fall asleep if we're in pain, or if we're cold, or if we're hungry. Those kind of discomforts keep us awake. And a kind of a, the ordinary use of asleep awake here, not necessarily talking about spiritual awakening, but just simply being conscious and not unconscious. And likewise, when we when we unquestionably inhabit the view and the perspective of things that are imagined to us to be familiar and therefore predictable and therefore reliable, that's pretty much what's happening when we start falling asleep, when we're not paying attention. And so far as we can maintain some sense of security, what's security? Security is that basically most of the good things that are here are going to stay and most of the bad things that aren't here aren't going to turn up. That's what we're kind of thinking of when we're looking for security. And why is that? It's not just because I like the good things I've got and don't want to lose them and I don't like the bad things or the difficult things and I don't want to experience them. It's because in that condition actually I don't really have to be awake. Disruption and discomfort shake us out force us to have to become awake again and again, to see, oh, what's going on? What's happening? And so, could we welcome the disruptions, the discomforts, the disappointments, inherent and they're inherent in having a body, having a mind, having a heart. Being surrounded by other people who likewise have hearts and minds and bodies and a range of conscious and unconscious urges that drive them. Just as we do. Disappointment is inherent in that. Discomfort is inevitable. And disruption, when we actually see it and we realise, oh my gosh, it's not as I imagined it. It's not going to be as I hoped it. There's something very alive about that. It's like, it's natural. It doesn't require a lot of effort to be awake. We don't have to think about being mindful when we realize that everything could change around us. And so much of what arises in this body, this heart, this mind, it's, it's at times difficult, it's at times discomforting, painful, or just embarrassing, just embarrassing what goes on in our minds. And it's uncomfortable for us. I remember Joseph Goldstein once observing, um, 
you know, he, you, you probably have know his name if you don't know him. He's a, he's a lovely human being as well as a, a wonderful teacher and profound uh, walker of, and explorer of the path of Dharma. And, you know, many people come to his retreats and people, you know, queue up to get an interview with him and all, all that sort of thing. And, you know, I remember he once said, Gosh, if people knew what was going on in my mind while I'm meditating, <laughs> they wouldn't come to my retreats. <laughs> With a real humility, but also a kind of a sparkle of the, the humour of that. What is it to practice, you know, 20, 30, 40 years and still find that one mind does that? And I often think, well, imagine if our content of our mind was being projected on the wall. You know, at first it would be terrifying and horrifying and shocking. We'd think, oh my gosh, I've got to cover it. I don't want anyone else to see that. But if everyone else's was as well. <laughs> at some point we'd realize we're all, first of all, looking at our own screen projection. We're not worried that much what everyone else is doing, so no one's going to see ours. But if we did actually look, we'd see that, oh, actually their minds are doing much the same. At least a significant amount of the time. And then, of course, there are those beautiful moments where there's the the upwelling of some, some kindness, some compassion, some patience, some clarity, some wisdom. Of course, all this is part of it too. But so often when it comes to think, oh, that's good, that's what's supposed to be happening, that's the right, that's the successful, that's the proper meditative process experience, you know, that's the unfolding of the Dharma, just got it there. Yeah, and all that other stuff, God, you know. But no, it's all, it's all part of it. If we can welcome it all as an invitation to both let go of the the kind of small agendas we carry, the petty agendas we carry, that aren't really worthy of our greater potential as human beings. And that's not to view them from a point of view of judgment or criticism, because they're inevitable, they're natural in one sense, inevitable, but they're not necessary. And we can actually, in a sense, free ourselves from them, but more retrieve the energy that's invested in those urges to try and get it a certain way, have it a certain way, keep it comfortable, stay in the realm of the familiar and the pleasant. To to both take back the energy, the life force that's entangled in that effort, and also to have it available in a sense of freshness and openness to meet what's here, what's happening, and what's needed. Because that applies in any form of practice we're engaging in. There will find ways we start to try and get comfortable, make it familiar, make it work, use the fact that it works or doesn't work to tell me I'm good or I'm not good at doing this, and therefore a successful or not successful meditator. We'll do that, we can do that. But it's actually, I know that's not what this is about. To put ourselves into an orientation of sacredness is to trust deeply in this life that we are emerging from and in. That is emerging from and in us at the same time. We are both 
arising out of it, and it is arising out of us together. And it's it's remarkable, it's miraculous, it's sometimes really painful. But nonetheless, this is what we have to put our trust in. There isn't anything else that can hold the the weightiness of our life. The profundity of our life has a weightiness to it that will scatter and smash all the all the rather fragile and ultimately hopeless attempts we make to organise it according to our preference to make it happen the way the self thinks it should. So we have many invitations, many opportunities to let go in to our life. And of course what that means is letting go of our life. Letting go of our resistance to, letting go of our holding on to, but not letting go of our care for. Softening the grip, allowing the hands to become open, receptive, willing to take what's given. There's a profound lawfulness in the process that keeps on bringing us to the places where we can wake up. And it runs so fortunately counter to the urge within us that keeps trying to get us to the places we can go to sleep. And so again, it's a blessing. A fierce blessing, no doubt, but a blessing nonetheless. There's something else I'd like to speak about, which is in some ways related, in other ways not. So I could see my mind trying to figure out a great way to connect them up and sort of make it seem like a seamless transition. But actually, it's uh, something that touched my heart this morning in a tender way. Um, The news came that... uh, Leonard Cohen had died. And I thought some of you would be some, would know him and it would be a sad thing to hear, perhaps. He's not been that far from that place for the last little while, and so I thought perhaps it also wouldn't be such a surprise. But for myself, he's a, uh, he's a teacher as well as an inspiration and an entertainer. And uh, Leonard, I think... And many could, I say, imagine, speak of him more fully than I. But he had a, had a beautiful and heartful presence. And he was a wise person.
poet and musician who I think touched a lot of people and uh, in the spirit of the power of things that don't always make us feel comfortable but nonetheless are very real I thought he was a great exponent so I in contemplating shall I name this here shall I just mention it because it's in me and it's actually in the larger field of the world of course in some way we don't always know what goes on but it nonetheless touches us whether we know it or not and such things that are sad in one sense of course we can just take a moment to notice how it lands and if it was in any way clumsy how it came to you from my part I'm sorry and at the same time there was some part of me that just felt oh yeah this is about what's in terms of also honouring that we don't have to stay where it's comfortable and uh, I think some of the really the controversial way or the way in which Leonard Cohen's music was sort of viewed in a range of different perspectives shall we say some of it was that I don't think he tried to keep people comfortable or make them comfortable but he did point to something very true, something deeper in life. And so I just wanted to share a couple of things because they were touching to me and they're actually meaningful to us when we're engaged in meditation practice and talking about not being here to just get comfortable and stay asleep, but to actually use the raw material of our life to wake up. Then, of course, the contemplation of death is one of the things that the Buddha pointed to again and again. And that, that someone we might know or care for has passed from this life. Again, it just helps us remember what it's about. And some of you may have, you know, followed. There was a, a beautiful, sort of, some, some, he's been in the news a little bit in the last few months. In July, he wrote a letter to Marianne, I'm not sure how to say her surname, Alan, um, who was. Uh, a lover, a partner, and someone who, an inspiration, a muse for some of his music and songs. And he'd learned that she was terminally ill and close to death. And he wrote, he said, Well, Marianne, it's come to this time when we are really so old and our bodies are falling apart. And I think I will follow you very soon. Goodbye, old friend. See you down the road. And just a few words from, he was 82, an elderly, I guess we'd say, gentleman, he certainly was, to me at least, to an ex-lover of long ago. And just in that, no pretending it's other than this, it's just this, boom, yeah, bodies on their way, we're going soon. See you down the road. And he said in an interview with the uh, New Yorker just a month ago, and it was probably last interviews, he said, I'm ready to die. I hope it's not too uncomfortable. That's about it for me. And again, just, just that direct. Yeah. I hope it's not too uncomfortable. How beautifully human to know that it might be. But that's not what he would wish for. Readiness to die doesn't allow for any fantasy about how it will be. Because of course we just don't know. We can't know. 
But before coming to that point, he said, he spoke about making arrangements for his death. He said, at a certain point, if you still have your marbles and are not faced with serious financial challenges, you have a chance to put your house in order. It's a cliché, but it's underestimated as an analgesic at all levels. An analgesic at all levels. A painkiller. And it's interesting because the article, this was an article on the BBC website, went on to suggest that death was the analgesic. Took the pain away. And I actually thought, mm, I'm not sure they got it. Or at least when I read it, I think, no, no, it's actually that sense of attending to your life before you die that takes the pain away. The analgesic effect is actually having lived a contemplative, a spiritual life. And again, you may know of, of him, um, although his music was by far his poetry, his writing and his love life were famed and famous um, he was also a, spent five years in a monastery as a Zen monk and had kind of given up on all of that music stuff and touring and all of that and uh, his accountant embezzled his savings, you probably heard this it's I think about five million dollars gone and despite the fact that you know she was taken to court and found guilty and had to pay it back she didn't so he ended up going on tour again, had to come out of the monastery, go back into the world. And something about that, like he'd really found some depth of peace and, and love of Dharma and of life. And, you know, explored. I have another friend a teacher, I teach with in Israel who uh, spent time with them in India, sitting, and they were sitting together at the feet of a guru, you know, at a certain point. And, you know, so there's little, little things, oh, yeah. Things go wrong sometimes for us. How annoying that someone steals your life savings when you're in your 70s. Damn! <laughs> really? Damn! And yet, out of it came some remarkable new music. And I was, I feel very fortunate. Catherine and I saw him at Wembley a few years ago, and amazing, amazing. This, you know, old bloke. Humble and brilliant at the same time. And he really was a teacher for me in that. I really felt him. And, I, and, and kind of the theme of that, the, the reflections that, that I just wanted to remember, he, he started off with, a, with an incredible twinkle in his eyes. He just sort of landed and said hello. He began, and he didn't so much apologise as just acknowledge. He says, you know, I want to acknowledge that uh, you've been put to some considerable financial and geographic inconvenience to be here. I thought, that's a really nice way to put the fact that we had to travel a long way and this cost an outrageous amount of money. And it was just one of those things we thought, well, we don't know if we'll get to do this ever again. And I haven't been to a concert or certainly paid that kind of money for a concert. Well, actually that kind of money ever, but been to a concert for a long time. But it was one of those things that, oh yeah, we'll take this chance. It's like if his holiness was coming and it was going to cost a lot of money to go and see him, the Dalai Lama, one would think, oh yeah, I could, I could fork out for that. But that sense of, you know, it was sort of apologising, but he wasn't apologising because he was actually celebrating that actually, in a certain way, everyone had been willing to make the effort to show up. That was part of the feeling and that it was a relational thing going on. He was appreciating that we were there just as we were appreciating that he was there. 
And then, again, I, I think that, that sense of, you know, financial inconvenience. And I thought, wow, this is from a guy who suffered the financial inconvenience of having $5 million removed from his account by his trusted friend, ex-lover, I believe, and accountant. And so, there's a moment for me of just acknowledging, oh, so there's a great heart, a great spirit, a great being in this world, and he's gone. And there's something just (coughs) gone, gone, gone. And that's just how it is when someone goes. And it's like, oh, that's a little more than an inconvenience. Well, that gets us a little bit beyond the world of discomfort, or even disruption. Disruption's getting there. But it's like, oh, wow, okay, yeah. This whole thing can just sometimes, and will at one point, be disrupted. But until that, that disruption, how amazing that we're here at all. And so I wanted to just reflect on a few of his lyrics. There are so many I could have chosen for this, and I'll just... Uh, yeah, I, I, I picked a few from a couple of songs that you may or may not know. And the first is from Thousand Kisses Deep. I can't sing. You know that if you know me at all. <laughs> I do actually have my phone with these songs on it. I thought about playing them, but we'll see. The ponies run. The girls are young. The odds are there to beat. You win a while, and then it's done. Your little winning streak. And summon, summoned now to deal with your invincible defeat. You live your life as if it's real. A thousand kisses deep. And that sense of, for me, the way that, you know, the, the ponies run, the girls are young, the odds are there to beat. You win a while. It's like, it's, look, it's going good, it's going good. I'm getting samadhi or my life's going well. It's all coming together, you know. And then it's done your little winning streak. And summoned now to deal with your invincible defeat. Invincible defeat. It's surprisingly uplifting as a concept, isn't it? Your invincible defeat. Or to me, the sense of, ah, okay, maybe it's not about that. Maybe we're not actually defeated here. You live your life as if it's real. A thousand kisses deep. And from Boogie Street... These are both from uh, 
Shannon gives up, aren't you both from 10 new songs for the album? It's, Starts, O crown of light, O darkened one, I never thought we'd meet. You kiss my lips and then it's done. I'm back on Boogie Street. And I'm in no authority to comment on what he may have meant. But for me, what it speaks to is the encounter with the the more mysterious, profound dimensions of our hearts, of our lives, of the world that could be personified but don't need to be. O crown of light, O darkened one. And that sense of it, interestingly, we talk about illumination associated with spirituality and images or expressions of, of light are often associated with the, the depths of understanding and wisdom and equally darkened one that sense of that which cannot be seen the unseen the shadowy for me this speaks of uh, the meeting of the seeing of the knowing of that which is not constrained by the world of form and appearance O crown of light O darkened one I never thought we'd meet You kiss my lips and then it's done. And I'm back on Boogie Street. And the sense of just that contact, the intimacy, the knowing of boof, that one sees through and into what is true, what is real, what is alive, what is here, what it is that we are, that is mysterious, that is sacred, that is also remarkably ordinary. And then it's done. We're back on Boogie Street. And for me, and I could go through all the words, but I won't, it would take too long. Boogie Street is it's the world, it's life. <clears throat> he goes on to say, So come, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear. And all the maps of flesh and blood are posted on the door. But there's no one yet who's told us what Boogie Street is for. So come, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear.
thank you for your practice and your presence here. Thank you, Leonard, for your practice and presence. And uh, please continue. And the interviews will begin in about a minute. And so that we're starting the first bracket of four will be five minutes late, approximately. I should catch up because there's a break in the middle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.